0: Welcome to the People First Leaders podcast. My name is Doug Utberg, Marine Corps veteran, founder, and CEO of Expendereviews.com, and I have absolutely nothing to sell you. The purpose of this commercial-free show is to honor the leaders who approach life as go-givers by putting their people and customer value first. Stick around until the end of the show, and we'll reveal how you can be our next guest in about twenty minutes. Let's go. We have Rain Mahdi with us today, and we are going to be talking about the new normal of global manufacturing. So, of course, everybody who's listening right now you know, knows unequivocally that the world is an enormous mess. We're uh, speaking from the United States, but of course, you know, because of all the supply chain shortages, the port stoppages, et cetera, just global supply chains are a huge, giant mess. And so one of the things that Rain is doing to try and address that is that his company actually connects both suppliers and purchasers from to and from Mexico for as far as doing outsourced manufacturing. However, there's a little bit of a rift there, which is that shifting from China dependence to Latin America dependence isn't necessarily the end state here. So what, what we're doing is we want to talk about, right, what is this new normal? And so anyway, Rain, I've talked right. for long enough. Uh, introduce yourself. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what you got going on.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Doug. Really appreciate it. It's a timely topic, something that I'm sure your audience is going to want to hear about. It's something that's affecting all of us, whether we're aware of it or not. Some of us are more aware than others, but it's something that impacts us all, even as consumers, right? So, yep. yeah, that's what we're focused on. You know, for a long time, I imported products from China. Mm-hmm. And when the trade war hit, I realized how hard it is to get out of China, even if you're just looking for factories in another country in Asia. Even that's hard to find. The sourcing platforms out there, like Alibaba, are dangerous. For so many reasons that we can get into well, no, if you unpack that a little bit. Well, I mean, so because I remember when Alibaba launched, you know, like
0: I never brought myself to buy the stock or buy stuff from it because I, I just always felt like there was something fishy. But I never really kind of got to the point where I knew what it was.
1: Yeah, yeah. Hey, I know Alibaba's platform very well. And I I myself was scammed by a supplier who was deemed a gold supplier by Alibaba, which I later found out is just a higher tier of their annual subscription. There's really not anything special about it. And that's kind of that says a lot in itself. Like Alibaba is really complicit. In misleading buyers by doing something like that, selling a seller a badge that mm-hmm. they could put on their account that makes them look more trustworthy. And they know that's the effect on us unsuspecting yeah. buyers is that we say, well, maybe that one's a little bit safer and so we'll go with them. But really, they just paid $1,500 more and they got the little badge. So now, did you, did get, you get your money or did you? Uh... No, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't For get my money time. back. So. You know, the difference between like, uh, you know, a platform, I don't want to make it all about them, but the difference between a platform like theirs and, and us is mostly it comes from their business model, that subscription model. So because they make their money on selling subscriptions and then selling those sellers ads like sponsored listings, they're incentivized every day to sign up as many suppliers as they can sign up more, sign up more with no attention to their quality, their merit, their trustworthiness. They don't care. If it's a guy with a laptop pretending to be a factory or if it's a real established, you know, high quality factory to them, it doesn't matter. It's another subscriber to make it even worse, though, in order for them to maintain and, and retain those subscribers, they actually have to create an even playing field. Because if I show up on Alibaba as a buyer, and I can tell this guy is just a laptop guy on the couch, and this is a real factory, am I ever going to do business with that laptop guy that has a fake picture of a factory? Absolutely not. So – they hide details like, is this a trading company? Is this a manufacturer? They allow that line to get verified as a manufacturer It'd be very blurry. They're very in the, the gold supplier badge, but they've now rebranded as something else, right? Because people caught on to it, but it's the same exact thing. So they have to create this even playing field so that the guy with the laptop and the factory both get business. So that way they continue renewing their subscriptions. So that's really what's at the heart of aside from the fact that you know there's the counterfeiting and all that that goes on i mean you can go on there now and find jordans and anything else that you want to find and they're doing nothing about it they say they are but they're doing absolutely nothing about it they're very intelligent if they wanted to wipe that stuff out of the site they could have it gone in a month they don't want to do that so that's them now We operate on a commission basis. So we take a small, small percentage of the transaction on the back end from the supplier. So we don't make money until they get an order. And that means that we're incentivized not to sign up as many people as possible, but to sign up people who are going to do good business. Actually fulfill. Will actually fulfill, not just fulfill, but do it at a level of quality and provide a level of service where people feel good about it and they want to come back and order from them again and again and again and again. And then we offer this safe place to process your transactions with payment protection. And we have to do those disputes fairly as well when things go wrong. If we create this healthy marketplace where people feel good about doing business, they'll continue to come back and that's how we make money. So it's a very different model in the DNA of it. And that's what we do. Okay, well,
0: now let's kind of pivot this into, right, what does the new normal look like? I mean, and because I think a lot of us are sort of conjecturing because, you know, on the one hand, you know, the way things had developed, you probably started really in the 80s, but then kind of, you know, getting to about the mid 2000s or so, I think is when it peaked, which is where you had the just-in-time religion, which was big in the 80s. The the whole idea being that you have a supply chain and you have vendors that will deliver your stuff just exactly when you need it, so you don't ever need to carry any inventory. The problem is that when that gets disrupted, especially if you have a long supply chain, now all of a sudden you have no supply at all and you have no chance of getting supply for potentially a really long time. Right. Because of course, that, that's what we've all experienced for the last couple of years is that the supply chain got disrupted, nothing can get delivered, and it doesn't matter how many orders you put in, it doesn't matter how many expedite fees you pay, nobody can get anything. And then prices just go up toward infinity. That's right. That doesn't feel like the kind of thing we want to get back into. But on the other hand, if you try to onshore everything, if you think you've seen inflation now, you ain't seen nothing yet, you know? right. or if you try to do everything onshore. Now, it feels like there's some kind of hybrid that might be tenable, because like the, the thing that I keep thinking is, particularly for like agriculture and food production, that if you can decentralize that a little more, you should be able to... I, I don't know that you'll save any money. It's probably going to end up costing more but you have a much more resilient supply chain. So like, as of right now, as we're recording this, the price of eggs is just crazy. And the reason why is because there's a whole bunch of poultry that, that had to be pulled out of the production stream uh-huh. because of bird flu and uh-huh. because of contamination concerns. It turns out that my wife and I have chickens in our backyard, so we've actually been pretty fortunate. But on the other hand, we have this crazy price spike in, the, in eggs. And a lot of that is because even though it's domestic, you have like these 200,000 square foot warehouses that are just packed from wall to wall with chickens. Yeah. And and it's really utterly disgusting from a humanitarian perspective. Sure, sure. It's like, you know, this is the psychotic vortex, right? That's where things Mm -hmm. naturally go when you are trying to make things as cheap as possible. It naturally goes toward consolidation and it naturally goes toward a fragile supply chain with questionable ethics. That is inevitable. Absolutely. And so I think I'm going to assume that people are at least open to a higher level of consciousness, and that the new normal may be a little more ethically balanced. I don't
1: know. I'm maybe I'm being a little naive here. I
0: don't know what your thoughts. Well, are.
1: well, you're not being naive, but you know that idea about low cost is not going away, right? Yeah. it can't go away because of the nature of business itself and competitiveness, right? And so you know in my last business, I sold packaging and there were clients that we had who their entire branding was eco-friendly. And then when you show them the cost of eco-friendly packaging, and then you show them the cost of conventional plastic packaging, it puts them in a difficult place because if it's a dollar per unit versus 15 cents per unit, maybe that makes them far less competitive with their competitors and if they're not in business then they're not there to make a profit and do any of those eco-friendly things it's not necessarily that they're hypocritical yeah. it's just that you have to stay in business in order to pursue any of those other initiatives that you have and other times it is just greed right so but riffing on what you're saying one of the things yeah. that i keep thinking about too is i'm in the portland oregon
0: area and so there's a lot of oh, people portland. here who are very very militant about like their whole foods natures yeah. you know their your organic food markets and stuff yeah but you know, median household income where I'm at is around fifty five, sixty thousand bucks. Nice. That's not enough to buy all your stuff from Whole Foods. You will go broke no. quickly. There's a lot of people who can't afford
1: to pay top dollar for everything. Right. That's no. That's true. I mean, and that's competitiveness, right? Like yeah. it's kind of similar. So Walmart gets a bad rap, but that's who they're serving. <laughs> yeah, that's who they're helping. Yeah, and it's that's more people. It's the masses, right? So. I mean, I agree. Look, the way that we ended up so reliant on China is that, right? Like before everything was made in the USA and everybody was proud about that. And then China was struggling real bad. Their economy was doing terrible. They were starving to death out there. And up comes this. I mean, honestly, they were right. And then up comes this manufacturing uh, economy for them. And they decide, well, we can be the world's factory. And we on this side go, well, we love American goods, but if I can get it for 20 cents, wow, and I can sell these super cheap. And nobody's thinking about it at the time. And all of a sudden, a pen that was $5 is now 30 cents. And we're going, whoa, and it's hard to turn back from that drug, right? Because people are making money hand over fist, capitalizing on a, a third world country, not even developing at that time, just a very poor country. But it's not so predatory. It's also kind of mutually beneficial because you go from starving to death. Now we have an economy and we're making money and look where they are 30 years later. So I want to unpack that a little bit because I think yeah. you
0: made a really important point. I think that there is a extremely important point of distinction between predatory labor practices and labor arbitrage between countries. Mm. Uh, so, for example, you know, since I'm in the Portland area and Nike's headquarters here, here. you know, Nike was pilloried for decades Because, of course, their shoes are manufactured by very low-cost labor over in, you know, like Vietnam or China, different places. Mm -hmm. You know, however, there's a couple of really important factors. Number one, are you dealing with a legitimately voluntary exchange or do you have some form of coerced labor? Right. Well, in this case, what happened was there were literally people waiting in line to try to get a job at the factory. Right. Because, you know, just in case somebody didn't show up and they needed somebody else. Right. So what that tells me... Is that even though the factory is much pays much less than someone makes in the US, it is still a favorable voluntary exchange for somebody who lives in that country in that economy. Right. That also means is that as that economy develops, then that gap will start to equalize, meaning that whatever that savings you're getting, it'll start eroding over time. Right. And eventually you'll start you're moving toward equalization. You know, right. but then you start seeing automation, different types of things there. So but I don't want to rant here, but I think that no, makes that's an important right. distinction to make. You know, because on the other hand, if you're basically coercing people to, you know, well, okay, like the cobalt mines in the Congo. I don't know if you've seen the stories about this, but pretty much, you know, like every cell phone, iPhone, you know, electric vehicle, the batteries use horrendous amounts of cobalt. Seventy percent of all the world's cobalt comes out of the Congo, hmm. and this cobalt is mined in basically. Enormous open pit mines that have thousands and thousands of people basically just, you know, it's like in the Ten Commandments where they have the Hebrew slaves who are going and cutting the straw and hewing the bricks. I mean, it's like that. And it's basically, it's subsistence pay rates and it's essentially forced labor. Yeah, Every tech company has all signed an ethical supply chain pledge. And I don't buy that nobody knows this is going on, but nobody's doing anything about it.
1: Right. Yeah, no, I hear you. You know, Africa of all the places in the world has the farthest to go in terms of development. And that's the place, you know, things that you would find in China, you don't find those kind of conditions nearly as much anymore. There's so much social responsibility that's been implemented, partly because, you know, people have gotten caught like Walmart and Disney and Nike and everybody, and they don't want that. And so these factories, if they want to work with good companies, they can't operate that way. They have to enact fair labor practices, give people time off, clean drinking water, vacation pay, overtime pay, you know, all that stuff. And so that's great. But Africa is not there. Africa is so far behind the rest of the world that those people are more vulnerable and they're more likely to be mistreated and exploited that way. And so it's terrible. But in China, you're not finding that. And you made a good point earlier that as an economy begins to rise up, as you know, they're getting more and more business, international trade, or whatever economy they've established for themselves, then the living wage starts to increase, and then it innately makes them less competitive on a global scale because now the wages are higher, good for them, but now that 20-cent pen is 40 cents, and you start looking around the world for your next best opportunity. There are a lot of businesses in China currently focusing on establishing new manufacturing facilities in Mexico, South America, and Africa. Oh, that's a huge thing. In the last few days, I've probably talked to three different people from the U.S. who are now living in Mexico trying to help establish connections between Chinese manufacturers, Chinese companies who want to set up business in Mexico and local commercial real estate brokers help them set up staff. It's an entire consultancy service that's booming right now while helping companies in China come out there and set up and in Africa it's the same thing because they know that their labor wages are higher than in Mexico and then in other places and they see themselves being replaced and so they're trying to displace themselves. If they see the writing on the wall then they go, well, we better, you know, be the solution in these other places and capitalize on The lower labor wages so yeah i think it's a pursuit that continues on kind of like that musical chairs well it's too expensive here now let's go here now let's go here but and it's not always very pretty But now that we are wiser because we've been down the China road before, we know to be socially conscious and aware of the labor conditions in new countries that we're sourcing from, like Mexico and Latin America, not that sourcing from Mexico is new, but as more small, medium-sized businesses and large businesses turn their focus there, then we know to be aware of that and not be oblivious to it like we might have been in the past. Hopefully the same attention will be spent. In Africa, we as a platform have some, something to do with that as well and creating opportunity and only enabling those opportunities for those who are operating that way. So I think that the next chapter in that book won't be as ugly as the previous, but it's necessary. And then in time, those, the cost of living goes up, the wages go up, and there's always two sides of the coin. Already in Mexico, you hear people talking about gentrification of their neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. You got to think about that in a weird way, right? Because that's a good thing. You know, like if there are areas that are now becoming so nice that it's expensive to live there, that's development. There's no easy way to do that. There's always a side effect. There's always going to be a symptom. Now, obviously, those people who feel displaced, hopefully they can find somewhere else to go or take part in the growth that's happening in their local area and it benefits them as well. And that's what you have to do. You have to go with that tide because the, what's the alternative is to stay poor and not make any progress. That's not a good thing. Just the other day without running off with your show, just the other day, I also watched a documentary because one of the, there's a guy that I've been speaking with, who's done a lot of business in Africa. And he was talking to me about the different areas in Africa that he's been and he listened mm-hmm. some of them and he, that he loves He says that Kenya is his favorite country in the world. And he said Burundi was the place that he would never go back to, that he's been, was the only one on the list that he said I would never go back there. So, obviously, I want to see what's going on in Burundi. I go to YouTube immediately, and I'm like, Burundi, you know. And what comes up is this mini doc. It's like 30 minutes, guy going, traveling around. And the title of the video, I believe, is The Poorest Country in the World. So, I Google it to see if that's just clickbait or if it's real. And it's real. Burundi pivots back and forth between... It goes back and forth between Burundi and I think Somalia for being the two poorest countries in the world. I'm not sure that's a competition you want to win. Right. So the thing, right. The point I'm making is I watched this thing and they could use some gentrification. I don't give a shit who feels displaced by it. They're living off of 60 cents a day. Their highest currency note is like 10,000 Burundi or whatever it is. And that's equivalent to $3.30 U.S. So... You know, it's a necessary evil. Here's something that I was just thinking. I don't want to cut you off. Like no, no, I'm pretty thinking? much done. That was it. Okay. Yeah. Because you'd say someplace, you know, poor like
0: Baruti, right? you say, yeah, but just think how far your money can go. Yeah. But and by what? Yeah. What can you buy? It doesn't right. matter how much money you bring there. You, there's nothing you can get. And I think that's one of the things to keep in balance here is, that, you know, if you halt development, then you're going to halt opportunity. Absolutely. And you want to make sure that you maintain opportunity for people to be able to work, advance, et cetera. Right. But, but you have to understand that there's this balance that exists.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You have to embrace change, right? Like people don't like change, but it's so necessary, especially in places like that. And there's no way you get to a better future, a better tomorrow without uh, some drastic changes. You know, a last thing on that, on the Burundi thing, right. Is like, it left me puzzled. I'm not into politics. I don't want to use the word socialist because it sets off a lot of triggers and bells and whistles for people that I don't mean to do. But and I absolutely don't hate the rich. If anything, I'm a capitalist. I think it's uh, great to go out and find ways to make money ethically and then do things with that money that benefits society and people. So I don't know what that's called, but that's how I feel. And you know, well, I don't. Th- know. There was a time when that's what capitalism was. It's right. we argue whether that's still the
0: case, but that's what capitalism was originally supposed to be.
1: Well, that's the idea that I have about it. Right. I I try not to think about the scourge that exists on the side and any group or organization. There's going to be people like that. So but, you know, I think about the folks who have hundreds of millions and billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars and how far their money could go in a place like Burundi. And how easy it would be for someone like that, I don't want to call it easy, but how possible it would be for someone like that to come in and spend $500 million, not giving away money, but setting up manufacturing facilities and training facilities, not trying to give people some general education that they can't actually use. Train these people on how to assemble these products, how to sew these things, how to operate these machines, and make money off of that. It's not exploiting them; it's giving them opportunity and teaching them useful skills. And in time, they'll have a foundation of an economy there that they can use to become more sophisticated and do more things. I well, don't you know. know what we mean, really interesting about that. what you just said. I really don't want to cut you off. Yeah. What I absolutely love
0: about what you just said is that. What you described is exactly what Booker T. Washington did with the Tuskegee Institute. That is exactly what he did is because, you know, there was after emancipation, of course, you know, he was born a slave. He started the Tuskegee Institute. Uh And instead of making it like a traditional university, which is where you you do liberal arts, he focused on vocational training, teaching people how to do stuff so that they could go out and be economically productive. Of course, you know, now it's a university just like all the rest of them. I would say somewhat unfortunately, because at, although, I don't know, fortunately, unfortunately, what I get to think dude, about, yeah. it's like, you know, trades are coming back, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of a general liberal arts education is getting less cool. And so, right. but I think that a focus on practical trades is really meaningful. And I think that's, it's starting to gain traction again, thankfully.
1: Yeah, I think that's so important, right? Like people don't need a philosophy degree or any of that, not to shit on any of those degrees or that knowledge base, but in areas where people are struggling and so far behind the rest of the world, they need something practical that they can use to lift themselves up and just get to a a foundational Mm -hmm. base, just some sort of working economy there, some value that they can offer and sell to the world that, hey, we can do this and make themselves viable in the global economy. And if they can do that through the internet and through those basic skills, you can take that and run with it and change things, maybe Mm -hmm. not overnight, but over time for sure. Right.
0: Absolutely. Well, and to me, that's really kind of in a nutshell, what the new normal is really about is that, you know, I think there's a little bit of a reset that happens and now you start figuring, okay, from that new base, you know, where you have elevated pricey stuff's more expensive Mm -hmm. and availability is not as high as it was before. Now, you can get upset about it. That's just how it is. Okay. So from that new base, what different decisions and actions are you going to take so that you can progressively make things better? To me that every time that a new normal comes in place, that's what it's really about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and again, the biggest thing is that these things, they take time. That's the patience is for me, I think. Yeah. And not to kind of go on a tangent here, but like back to like this yeah, this is all we're doing is going on tangents. Yes. So I call this episode tangent after tangent. That'd be better. I think about what needs to happen in, in Mexico in right. order for them to gain more respect amongst the small and medium-sized enterprises. Large multinationals have known for a long time about the benefits of sourcing from Mexico, the proximity to the U.S., super right. quick delivery times. There's even like an environmental impact of like, you know, quicker shipments and not these big, long slow boats coming over from China. If that's an important thing for you and the labor and, and all these things in the same time zones, they've thought about all
0: being that. able to drive on a road to the U S kind of helps because yeah. that removes a whole layer of uncertainty just because weird stuff happens when you're crossing oceans,
1: you're eliminating the entire risk of port congestion or anything yeah. like that. Right. And also those shipping rates just tend to fluctuate much more than land rates because what's going to change on land aside from the price of gas, you know, it it is the economics are much more stable. Absolutely. Yeah. But you know, it's still, it just, it takes time for people to, and when you have all these drivers like you've had recently, you know, you've had these back to back agitators with Asia, the geopolitical stuff, the trade war, people are still paying 25% tariffs on everything they're importing. They're silently crying about that. And nobody is just not newsworthy anymore. Nobody's listening to them, but they're still paying that tariff. It never went away. It used to be in the headline every day, but I think people have just accepted it and given up on the fight. And the trade representative, Catherine Tai, kind of her last statement on it was they're not going anywhere until they start operating like our economy. Those tariffs are staying in place. And they kind of responded immediately in a joint statement with Russia saying, we don't want to operate like the West. And so there's kind of where we are in the standoff, right? So yeah. one of the things that I was kind of
0: thinking about, or that it just sort of reminded me of is years ago, the first time I traveled to Asia, one of the things that just fascinated me, I think I was in, let say I was in Malaysia. And so then what I did was, you know, they had a mall that was over in Georgetown. And so, you know, on a weekend I went over and visited the mall. And so anything that was manufactured either locally or like in China, cost almost nothing, right? Mm. Like, it was so cheap. Mm -hmm. But anything that had to be imported was like 150% to double what it costs here. And of course, you know, I'm thinking these folks who are in Malaysia, they don't get paid that much, right? not not relative to the U.S. And I'm like, how in the world can they afford this stuff? And of course, the answer is a lot of people can't, or they have to spend a really high percentage of their, you know, monthly or annual income in order to you know, basically just in order to buy their normal stuff.
1: Well, that is the actual purpose of import taxes and tariffs, right? That's what they're made to do is incentivize consumers to buy products from a certain place, whether it's domestically made goods or goods made by a partner country that they have a relationship with like China right so if we have a trade deal me and you China then we're not going to put tariffs on your stuff we're not going to put duties on your stuff that's going to make it real cheap on the shelves and people are going to buy it and you're going to get more business now if we don't like you we're going to make it really expensive so by the time your stuff gets to the shelf it's 10 times more expensive than the other stuff a lot of countries oper- every country operates that way that's the basis right like I have a good friend, my partner in my last business, actually, he's from Dominican Republic, Mm -hmm. because they have such a small economy, they put major duty taxes on anything that's brought in and anything that's made domestically, obviously, is much cheaper. But they put insane duties on stuff, even that just comes from the U.S., because, you know, they don't want to incentivize people to buy stuff from outside of the country. It hurts their economy. So. You know, uh,
0: so but of course, what, what ends up happening, or what was what was hilarious, was whenever people would come from, you know, say like you know Philippines, Malaysia, whatever, over to the U.S. The first place they'd want to go is they'd want to go to the Apple Store, the Nike Store. And yeah, <laughs> they want to yeah, buy yeah. all the stuff that's horridly expensive fact, and oh, aspirational, right? Like, like oh, you that, have that, you're rich, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, if it's it, I'm not in Oregon because we don't have sales tax either. <laughs>
1: <laughs> dude. Don't tell me that. California and New York, man, we are feeling a different pain, but that's another topic. Yeah.
0: Where else have oh, you been? In yeah. fact, even like back in my corporate career when I worked for Intel, because Intel used to have a shuttle that you know, I'm yeah. sure they still do that goes from yeah. the Hillsborough site to the Santa Clara site. Well, there's more than one time when I did a solid for some people that I worked with where I picked up an iPad at the Apple store and mulled it down to Santa Clara for them so they didn't have to pay the 10%. Oh.
1: <laughs> Wow! Yay! That's smart. That's illegal. You're a smuggler. That's what you just. You yeah, might no, want to bleep out that part, bro. IRS is coming for you. You own that. If you think about the interest on that, I don't know, I know man. I, <laughs> you better start hiding your money. Where else have you been in Asia? Just curious. Let's
0: see. So, it's been a little. I was in China for a little while. Been to India a couple times. India was fascinating. I mean, so because like I think when I went to China, I was in Shanghai. And Shanghai, it looks like Sim City, right? You know, when you go in there, everything appears perfectly orderly. Yeah. Until you get sort of like outside the development belt and you see where they're bulldozing down all the old tenements, people have absolutely no property rights here.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's all of China for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a different beast over there. Have you been to Shenzhen in China? I've not been to Shenzhen. Oh, okay. That's a really interesting thing. Very similar. Shenzhen's a unique place just because it's uh, right next to Hong Kong, you know? Uh Uh-huh. So that makes it a kind of a unique culture there. But anyway, but yeah. So, and then India, you said, was just a really interesting place. The thing that fascinated me about India is because I think I was in Pune, one
0: of the, which is not a huge city in India. I mean, it's like 18 million people. So it's, you know, far and away bigger than anything we have in the US. But what fascinated me about India was there'd be this little kind of corporate office park where there's these two buildings that are about like 10 stories tall. And like literally on the other side of the fence is like shanties, and fields with
1: just kind of stray animals. Yeah, <laughs> it's wild, right? I've never been there, but I've seen stuff like yeah. that. And you know, it like like in San Diego, maybe you'll be driving through a nicer area, and mm-hmm. then a couple streets, it might start to change, and then it becomes a little bit less nice. So I think yeah. every city, everybody has like that kind of a thing. There's thing, yeah. thing, yeah. But the drastic shift, it's so wild. of amazing place, how it does that. Like I said, I've never been to India, but for us as a business, looking at the opportunity in India Mm -hmm. is major. I do think that India is a sleeping giant when it comes to global supply because they have so much manufacturing there, so many working hands there, right? such a huge population. And, uh, and they have a lot of skill and ability. I think it's another, you know, so many opportunities around the world to produce goods have been overlooked because of our fixation on China for the last 25 years. And now that we're kind of zooming out and looking around, there's a lot of people who have been waiting in the wings that are capable of taking on that business. And so I'm really excited about the future of India actually as like a manufacturing powerhouse. And one other thing that I think India's been doing
0: that's smart is they haven't gotten into a military buildup like China because mm. you know, building up a military is really expensive. And, you know, because like China dumps a ton of money into their military, so does Russia, so does the US. Yeah. Okay, you know, here's India. I mean, don't get me wrong, they have a military, but you know, they're not trying to be number one. Right. They're just trying to make sure that they can basically keep their country intact. Right. And so right. the thing is if you invest your resources in developing your economy. Instead of building tanks and planes, as long as you don't get overthrown, that will pay dividends.
1: Yeah, that's a big as long as though, right? So you're saying make a bunch of money and then don't protect it? I don't know. Yeah. You might want well, guy at least a couple tanks. But yeah, well, I, I, and that's I suppose that that's the
0: other thing is that that'll be really, really good friends with one of the people who do. Have a people
1: well, and the, a and theory. therein lies therein lies the risk with India is that it's kind of fuzzy to figure out where they're aligning on those two different groups in the world: the U.S. and their allies, China yeah. and their allies. Kind of difficult to figure that one out, and they're a little bit politically unpredictable, and so yeah. it's it makes it a little bit risky. Again, I don't like politics, but I think if you are sourcing goods around the world, you need to be paying attention to those things because they affect you directly, you know, not indirectly, but directly affect you. So you have to look at that kind of stuff. But again, I think the future we're looking at is a future where buyers in every country have access to supply around the world. And if anything starts to happen in one place, it should be much easier to pivot now, pivoting from a manufacturer to another manufacturer, even within the same country, can be difficult because when you're working with a supplier, you start to come up with all these different protocols and quality control systems and all these different things that can take a long time to get in a groove with a factory where they're doing things exactly the way that you want. So, shifting isn't necessarily easy. But, like you said, if you're just relying on China and if there's some disruption there, it's been very, very difficult in the past to pivot quickly. And what I've seen most people try to do is find some local supply because by the time they realize that they're screwed, they're already out of time. They've got some order that needs to be fulfilled and they have very little time now to try to fill it. And so they panic and say, okay, what can we buy locally in the US? What can we get really quick? And they end up paying five, 10 times as much as what their costs were for that. And that's just not a responsible or sustainable business model. So I think Just having diversity, is that's the future and it doesn't exist. And so that's what we're working every day to build. I'm not trying to pitch the company. I'm just saying like on the topic of global supply, that is the solution. Gotcha. No, that totally makes sense. Yeah, man. Yeah. Would you go back to India? Oh, absolutely.
0: It'd be interesting to go back not on a business trip. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Because now traveling to India is not a picnic because you have to go through a lot of weird airports. But you can stay in five star places for very reasonable amounts.
1: China too. Yeah. Every time I go to China, I get the most expensive hotel I can find, and it's cheaper than like a Motel Six in San Diego. Now, yeah. yeah, it's it's, it's crazy. crazy. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I want to be water view. There's like this river. I can't remember the name of the river, but there's a river behind a hotel that I stay at in Shenzhen mm-hmm. and uh, or Guangzhou, Guangzhou. I no Guangzhou, Guangdong, and it's like just the like that room is a easily a $800, $1,000 a night room in San Diego. But anyway, yeah, that's kind of cool that you can really treat yourself when you go to other countries. Mexico, the same. Like you can really, unless it's like a touristy area, but yeah. Oh, that was, that was this has been a fun conversation.
0: Rain, let me ask, is there a question I should have asked you, but I didn't?
1: I think I did enough hijacking of your show to answer all my own questions and hear myself talk. I don't know. If, if you want to ask me anything else, I said everything there is, not everything, but I said enough about what we're about and what we're doing. If there's anything else you want to ask me, it should be some tangent. Ask me anything weird if you want to ask me anything. <laughs> the premise for perfect. this show was psychotic, right? Psychotic was in the title and you didn't ask me anything psychotic yet. So yeah. if you want to ask me anything weird, go ahead. Yeah, well, you
0: know, It's all about meaning and value. We're trying to help people get away from that. One thing I would exhort people to do is you know, just take a look into wherever what you're buying is sourced. Because there's a lot of stuff, unfortunately, that's sourced from places that are not very nice to their labor. And there's repercussions to those kinds of things.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in Mexico, it's funny. I've started posting more on social media and, uh, and reluctantly doing that myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, for me, that hits funny. You like to know why were you reluctant?
0: Mostly because a lot of people I know who are on social media all the time just develop tremendous amounts of anxiety. Uh-huh. So I kind of did this whole thing where I'm like, nope, I'm just not paying attention to any social media at all. Uh, Of course, uh, the thing is, you know, if you're trying to promote a business, that's kind of hard to do because social media is a fairly cost-efficient way to do promotion, or at least a what, But you have to be consistent at it for a really long time.
1: Yeah, it's tough, right? Because, like, not only do you have to be consistent, but it's hard to not get dirty. I'm just saying that, like, it's hard to not be a consumer of it as well, right? It's hard to just say, I'm going to make something, I'm going to put it there. And then I'm just going to turn the other way and go. You have to stay and be there and interact. And if you want to understand like the trend and just the overall vibe of what's working, you have to also be a consumer. Otherwise, the things that you're doing may or may not land. Now, if you just say, I'm going to do my thing regardless of what anybody else is doing, I don't care, and put it out there and then turn the other way and not go, that works. For me, it was kind of like trying to find the right theme of how I wanted to post stuff, something that felt natural but that also like was valuable to people. Yeah. Anyway, it's funny though, the reason I brought that up though is because it's funny, I, I post stuff and one of the, not maybe not one of the first things, but there's always at least one comment of somebody that's like yeah, but you don't want to get gutted in Mexico and filled with cocaine and sent back across the border by the cartels and it's like, you know, it's funny because The media, not that the cartels don't exist, not that there's not any truth at all to that statement, but it's absolutely sensationalized by the media in terms of how it affects international trade, because, you know, everybody thinks about Mexico. They think about the cartels. It's not fair that they think about that. They think about the drugs and they think about the illegals. And sure, those are all elements. Every country has their elements of things that are bad. But, you know, people don't realize that Mexico is already the number one trading partner for the U.S. Our number two supplier behind China, but our number one trading partner, because the trading goes both ways. China, we just buy from them. They don't buy from us. With Mexico, we buy from each other. So they're our number one trading partner. And the cartels are not stopping that. It's billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars in business going back and forth every year. And I just think it's kind of silly to bring up these cartels, but I only brought that up because you're talking about the treatment of workers. And I think that is really important. I think people have this misconception that maybe the cartels are exploiting all or extorting all the business owners and they're, you know, manhandling the employees. It's just, you know, that's just not the case. I was going to say,
0: I'm sure it was at one point. I mean, but, you know, now get, I have no proof at all for this, but I was you know for the statement, but I was doing a little bit of mental math one time i was on vacation with my family at cabo Uh and the place where we were staying you know the time we were staying at it was owned by a group that only has property in mexico and was founded in 1986 and i'm doing the math and i'm like pretty sure this is a cartel (laughs) (laughs) and because you because like okay cabo san lucas you notice it's at the Bottom south tip of the Baja Peninsula. There's desert in every direction, and you have a whole bunch of really affluent people who all descend on the place in and out all the time. Sure, nobody bothers anyone. Sure, it's sure. almost like there's a protection agreement in place to make sure that Cabo is like a little safe bubble.
1: Right. Well, it's like the know, it exists in Puerto Vallarta, it it and uh, exactly you know, I can see your logic there. It's feasible. It's possible that that's that happens. You know, you've got like. Playa del Carmen and Tulum and that whole area and Cancun and Cabo. And yeah, you've got these different kind of tourist pockets around, you know, is it the cartel saying, let's not do anything in these areas? I don't know. Yeah. So, you know, but kind of hijacking the conversation
0: <laughs> further off its initial, its, it's an yeah. initial topic because a lot of people think, you know, but they associate organized crime with drugs, but that's actually so, but like Lacosa Cosa Nostra, the Sicilian mafia, how Lacosa Cosa Nostra actually got started was in providing protection to Citrus Grove owners in Sicily, because what would happen is you'd have local bandits who would come by and basically kind of, you know, threaten to burn down people's field unless they were a ransom. So what ended up happening was you ended up having essentially these groups who would basically be the, essentially the private police force to protect people's property. You know, and that's actually up until, you know, mid-20th century or so, you know, mid-late 20th century, that's actually... The, that was the basis of kind of what a lot of organized crime did. Was what happened was, right, especially because, like, think in New York, right? A lot of the police officers were Irish, right? Mm-hmm. And so, if you were Italian or if you were from some other ethnic district, you tended to not get a lot of responsiveness from the police. Mm-hmm. And so, what happened was, right, the Italian mafia ended up being who people who were Italian went to to try to get protection when they didn't think they could trust the police. Mm. It's the same thing that Latinos would do with the Mexican Mafia. Mm. And, and, Mm. and, and. and. Now, of course, it's evolved since then, but I think that's one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of these organized crime groups, right, You know, they didn't start out being exclusively exploitative. A lot of times what they did was they filled a need for protection that it was a vacuum in the market.
1: Yeah, but now they just sell fentanyl. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Protection doesn't, didn't fit before. Yeah, it's just fentanyl now. But, you know, like I said, you know, every country has their stuff. I forget what the list I was looking at was. There's like a global terrorism index. Uh-huh. Have you heard of that? Yeah. No. Yeah, there's a global terrorism index. And it's really funny because all these people talk about the cartels, the cartels, so much news coverage, media coverage on the cartels. But when you look at that global terrorism index, I don't remember exactly where it was on the list, but Mexico was way lower on the list uh-huh. than United States. United States was like way higher in terms of more terrorism than Mexico is. I just thought that was interesting. And all I'm saying is I'm not trying to say any country's better than any other country. But what the media tends to do is take the scourge and bring it to the top because it makes great headlines. And then if we're not living in that country or know anything about that country, that becomes our total perception of that. There are people who have a different idea about the United States than we do. They think that every single day, every street, there's some mass shooting going on because that's all they hear about. And that's probably what their media and even governments tell them about us. But in reality... Per capita, you know, it's definitely happening far too often and much more often it's the saddest thing, but probably not to the extent that people that don't live here think that it does. They probably think it's just every day, dozens of them a day, but it's starting to feel like it is, you know, anyway. Well,
0: that's one of the things that's really important to understand just with any kind of media at all is that whether you're talking social media, news media, whatever, is that the reason they exist is not to deliver content, truth, or anything. The reason they exist is to sell advertising. Entertainment and selling the yes. advertisement. Absolutely. Sell advertising. Well, the reason entertainment exists is to sell advertising. Absolutely. Selling, More clicks, yeah. selling ads, Definitely. eyeball revenue. That is yep. the reason why all of it exists. Absolutely. And so the, the reason why everything is so sensationalized is because that's what gets the eyeballs and clicks that will drive the ad revenue.
1: You ever Absolutely. see Vanilla Sky? Oh, I
0: didn't catch the whole thing. I, I think I caught about half of it one time.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's just a line in that movie that stuck out to me. He goes, what's the answer to 99 out of 100 questions? And what? Money. But look, it's a clever line, but it's so funny because since that, I've thought about that deeply years and years and years. And it's really true that a lot of times you can trace the root back or the cause back to money. And it's so funny that if you really try to think about it, that's the motivation behind a lot of things, man. So- I'm just going to get a little philosophical on you for a minute because, you know, so, you know, I'm 45 years old.
0: I don't have one foot in yet, but I'm not a spring chicken. So, but, you know, I was just thinking about that. And I'm like, okay, well, so I've got, depending on the actuarial tables, 40 to 50 years left. Don't start thinking that, bro. That's, that's a spiral. You're not supposed to yeah. have that thought enter your mind, but I hear you. Well, and so, okay, well, so, but here's where I'm going. And so, you know, I'm not trying to be a nihilist here, but let's just start from the assumption that two weeks after I'm dead, pretty much everybody except my kids or people who I have really, really meaningfully helped will effectively forget that I ever existed. Yeah. And so what that really makes me think of is that amassing an enormous pile of money doesn't really have much of a purpose behind it because that means either my kids or grandkids will not have the opportunity to create a meaningful life for themselves. And because like the numbers show unequivocally, you know, unless you're a Vanderbilt or Rothschild within three generations, it's all gone. So that's the thing is that, you know, like a bunch of us are scurrying around trying to make this enormous pile of money and not that there's anything wrong with that, right. but it's like, you know, if you think that that's going to create some kind of legacy, it won't no. What create a legacy is if you use that money to help people. Yep. If you be Just only mass can- a whole bunch of capital two weeks after your debt, everybody will forget you were there and whoever you gave that money to will be having a really good time.
1: Yeah. I always say almost verbatim, the same thing that your legacy is it's the impact that you had on the lives of the people that knew you and it's the work that you did in the world those are the only two things that last everything else is gone and it's funny right like I didn't come from a wealthy background I was born on welfare and you know, really kind of rags and riches story up and down, up and down. We were broke. We were, you know, had money. We yeah. were never rich, but, well, you know. rich is relative because once you get a little bit of money, all of a sudden, you, know, you meet some people who have more and
0: you're like, oh, wait a second.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so I thought I'd made it and I, re- I just realized I've only I made it to the first rung.
1: It's for sure perception, right? And I run into dads sometimes. My kids play soccer and stuff. I'm always around like other dads and moms and stuff. And sometimes we're just sitting around chatting and it's funny because sometimes I run into people who come from, you know, a similar background to me where they maybe struggled as a kid coming up and now they've created this life for themselves where they're, you know, we're in this area that's nicer and our kids have all the things that they could possibly want or need. And, And it's funny because, you know, we all focus on, it's almost like we're not sure if that was the right thing to do. It's like now that we're in this position to afford them anything they want, have we stolen from them then? The opportunity to struggle and to forge that character that we've gotten that got us to this point and we find a hollowness in some of their existence, not completely, you know, but it's like they're missing that gumption and that grit that you get from having to scratch and claw your way up. And I think about kind of what you just said. Where does that lead you two, three and four generations down the road? That's why the money's gone at some point because you steal away mm-hmm. that sense of urgency and that survival and yeah. that grit that brings the best out of you and that molds the toughest character. And so I don't know, but I don't know which one is the right one. You know, yeah, exactly. exactly,
0: exactly. Yeah, no, I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. Yep. But yeah, well, you have kids. Yes, I do. I have two.
1: My daughter is
0: sixteen, and son's thirteen.
1: Nice, wonderful. I have four kids, man. Oh, outstanding.
0: Say- yeah, my oh, son is. So I'm going to say thank you very much from a humanitarian perspective because oh, I think right I was on. looking at some, at a set of uh, tables from the World Bank, and I think the birth rate for the US is like 1.6 right now. So I'm doing a little more than my share. You're doing, You're doing more it. more
1: than your share. I'm the, hey, my idea was one kid, and then yeah. I had the one kid, and then they just kept showing up, you know. So, but they are the biggest blessings in my life. Yeah. They're, they're wonderful. Well, this reminds me of,
0: this is my favorite story of compromise that I like to tell. So some friends of ours, they were talking one time and, you know, she wanted to get a cat and he didn't want to get a cat. So they compromised and got two
1: cats. And that's, if you're married, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And that's 100% what's happened in my life. And I ended up with four cats and they're annoying and I love them. But yeah, man, you know. I have I've two played, dogs, two cats and eight chickens. Do you really? Hey, <clears throat> funny, last funny story. My wife wanted chickens. And we didn't have a yard and it was mother's day. And I went to the feed place or whatever, and they had the chicks and, you know, they're only like, I don't know about in Oregon, but they're only like five bucks for yeah, the little yeah, chicks. Right. Yeah, and they give them to sense. you in like a little happy meal kind yeah. of thing. Right. So, <laughs> they, so, so I got a couple chickens and I came home and I had the little happy meal thing sitting there on the end table. And she's like, what's that? And I'm like, it's your present. Open it up. She opens his chickens in it. So, you know, we've set up a little, uh, like a contain, like what's the, like a storage container yeah. in the kitchen put the heat lamps on, you know, uh-huh. regulate yeah. the temperature, you know, do the whole thing. And then at some point they got bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's funny because there was a time where they were like small and one of them would chase me around the house like a dog. Like I would, I would walk and it would follow me around. I walk back and it followed me around. I have a video of it. But at some point they got really big and you know, you, I thought, and this is a misconception I bet a lot of people have. I thought that only roosters crow. And the fact of the matter is every single morning when those hens lay an egg, there's a scream. I don't know if you call it a crow, but it's loud. Yeah. They're they're clucking pretty loud. They're clucking. You can almost call it a crow. And it got real loud. And so we ended up putting them outside and uh, like on our patio. But our HOA was like, you know, you can't have chickens. But so my wife was real worried about it. But I'm like, oh, they're not going to say anything. If they do, we'll just get rid of the chickens. So one morning. They're down there trying to lay their eggs. It's like 6.30 in the morning. And they're going, blah, 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 And you hear one of our neighbors just go, are you fucking serious? And slams his window shut. And she was so worried after that. She just couldn't rest anymore. So she, her parents, uh, friends have a farm. And we're like, okay, we'll just give them the chickens. But for that few months that they were like laying, and it was, man, the, we were getting those eggs every morning. It was nice, man. It's nice to get those free. Especially right now, it would be nice to have some yeah
0: right yeah well it's i go well because yeah i think the texture and flavor is a lot better and i know for ours here they have like those armor coated shells
1: oh they do they're thick and you don't have to refrigerate them that's another thing i didn't know about that is like those pasteurized eggs you have to refrigerate but when you get fresh eggs you can just sit them on the counter yeah they're good for a while they're good yeah never knew that man yeah as long as you're kind of going through them and you don't put the new ones on top of the old ones you just cycle them around then you know you're good so Yeah. So, you know, chickens are a wonderful thing to have around, especially right now. But uh, so if you ever last thing, you probably don't want to answer this question, but if you ever, how long you had chickens? Let's see. About a couple of years. We got them going in 2020. Do you eat your egg laying
0: chickens? Like when they're when they're pretty kidding? No, they're basically pets.
1: I know. That's what I'm asking. Like, do they stop laying eggs after a while? We didn't have that long. Yeah, it's usually about three, four years. Oh, three,
0: four years. So so you haven't had one run the course yet. Now, we have gotten to the point where we don't name them anymore because the first crop that we got, we named them. And then I think the dogs thought that some of them, that a few of them uh, were squeaky toys. Yeah. And then we had other ones that got popped by a chicken hawk, other ones that got hit by a coyote. And so like, uh, you know, I've been turning our chicken yard into like Fort Knox, right? You know, you're I just too tasty, tasty bro. Everybody wants that chicken. So, yeah. You know, I've you know, got deer netting. I mean, I've got like the little, you know, reflective tape. And so yeah. now we'd get like the cheapest bread. <laughs> we just get Orpingtons ah! and barred rocks. We just get a few extra, brood them and send them out. I don't even bother naming them anymore. So
1: I also so the question persists. Then yes, yes. the I it in the first
0: place. Eggs. I was like, I go, I was like, no, you, you go, what? You go, no. When you name it, you're going to get attached, That's and when it. something happens, you're going to be really upset.
1: That's it. So, will your family gather around and have a chicken dinner when one of these chickens that you did not name stops laying eggs? Will uh, it not will if my wife it? has anything to ah, say Yeah, it. It. my wife, my wife is the same. She's like, never. But I'm like, hey, you know. Yeah, I'll, I'll, <laughs>
0: Anyway, which, which right. is funny because my father in law keeps asking when she's, she's going to butcher up one of the chickens. And of that's
1: course, right, he's, right. he's got the right idea. So, but anyway, yeah, that's fun. You know, maybe oh, one day we'll get a bunch of chickens.
0: This has been the most fun I've had in a while. Rain, right. let everybody know your website and where they can find you.
1: So, if you're on Instagram, it's at Zip Fox Global. If you're going to the website, it's just zipfox.com. Z I P F O X. You can search. Products. You don't even have to create an account, and uh, you don't have to create an account until you want to request a quote from a supplier. And there is absolutely no fee. There's no membership fee, there's no cost ever at any time. It's free to use. Yeah, for rain, this is a lot of fun, man. Thanks, man. Same. I love it.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the People First Leaders podcast. If you are a successful People First founder or CEO who would like to be on this show, please visit peoplefirstleaders.net forward slash guests. If this interview resonated, would you please share it on social media? Just take a quick screenshot on your phone and post it on your favorite social channel. Then make sure to tag me at Doug Value so I can give you and your business a shout out on a future episode. If you know somebody who'd be a great guest, please tag them on social and include the hashtag peoplefirstleaders. I really love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We're releasing new content and episodes all the time. So make sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any new episodes. Your thumbs up ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show. And they mean a lot to me personally. And also, I would like to connect with you on social. My handle is at Doug Value, or you can just go to peoplefirstleaders.net where all of the links are posted. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.